presents Between Samaria and Galilee, the sermon by the Rev. Jane Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, October 13, 2019. Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, between Samaria and Galilee. He was in the borderlands. Back in 2008, I took the first youth group I had ever worked with on a service trip to Mexico. We loaded up a van with all our camping gear and and food and then boarded a huge 15-passenger van and drove the 20 hours from Portland to San San Diego and the San Isidro crossing into Tijuana and then a short way south to Rosarito Beach. When we got to the border, I pulled into the right-hand lane as our hosts at Amor Ministries had instructed me to do ahead of time. And then I turned around to make sure all of the kids were awake. I had warned them earlier in the day that at the crossing, they would need to have their passports ready, to turn off their music, to take their earbuds out, to sit up and pay attention, to be respectful. It turns out I really needn't have bothered. A representative of the mission was there to meet us. I handed him a list of the people in our two vehicles, which he checked against a list I had sent ahead. He gave it to the Mexican agent, who smiled cheerfully and waved us on through. Enjoy Mexico, which we did. We were there only for a week, and we spent most of it hot and covered with cement and stucco and sawdust and dirt. We cooked over a camp stove and took bucket showers and slept in tents, and during the day we worked on a house. I'll leave it to another time and another conversation to talk about what's right and what's wrong about having middle-class American teenagers volunteer in this way. But suffice it to say, we went with a good intent and a good heart, and we did enjoy our week in Mexico. We poured a concrete floor and framed up and stuccoed a house. We shingled the roof, and we hung a door that swung to, clicked in the frame, and locked. We enjoyed ourselves. But by the time we got back to the border, all 17 of us were tired and sunburned and sore. One of the kids had contracted food poisoning, another had a migraine, and one of the adults was recovering from heat stroke. Energy was low and tempers were a bit frayed as we got stuck in a traffic jam that turned out to be the line to get through the border crossing. It is, in fact, San Isidro is the most heavily crossed land border crossing in the world. We didn't know that at the time. Heading north, there was no special lane to the right and no Amor representative to smooth the way for us. We were not nervous to be waiting in line. Cranky, but not nervous. The lines were so slow that dozens and dozens of enterprising people had set up businesses selling ice cream and cold sodas, flowers and hats and art, and all kinds of tourist tchotchkes. It was tricky. You didn't want to catch anybody's eye because they would immediately come over to the van and try to sell to you through the window. And we had the window open because 
the van was overheating and we couldn't keep the air on. There was loud music coming from seemingly everywhere. This went on for hours and days and weeks. <laughs> and still, we were not frightened, cranky, but not frightened. We were Americans headed back to America. What did we have to be afraid of? We were merely annoyed by the wait to get back to what we knew was our birthright, our home. And then all hell broke loose. Up ahead, someone's crossing went badly wrong, and suddenly a man went pelting past our van on foot, followed quickly by agents wielding weapons. Soon, other car doors were being flung open, and people were bailing out and running in all directions. And armed guards were running in all directions after them. We saw two people leap up a fence and get dragged down and taken into custody. I am not a person familiar with law enforcement or guns. The only gun I've ever held is a BB gun up at camp because the boys begged me to do it. I'm terrified of guns, to be honest with you. And I had a van load of other people's children and my own, at that time, 16-year-old son. I was terrified, so I turned and I yelled at them to get down, get down. It was like something out of a movie. All the people who had been in the street selling their wares evaporated while sirens blared and lights flashed. And then, as suddenly as it had all started, it was over. Cars began pulling ahead one by one to get their papers examined, their Mexican purchases declared, and their entry into the United States permitted. The sellers of flowers and sodas and tourist trinkets returned, and the sunny day was just as it had been before, as if nothing had happened. Except that now, we were not only hot and tired and cranky, we were well and truly freaked out. We just wanted to get across that border and back onto home turf where we belonged, back where we felt safe. There was another 15-passenger, a white 15-passenger van ahead of us, probably another van load of American do-gooders. But someone must have forgotten something in that van. One of their paper, some of their paperwork must have been out of order because we sat behind them for 30 minutes while they passed documents back and forth, and the driver spoke animatedly and gesticulated wildly. This did not calm us down. Finally, it was our turn. There was no simple list of occupants that was enough. Every one of us had to turn over our passports. Every one of us was spoken to by an agent. No one, the adults were not allowed to speak for the youth. And we were asked many, many times where we had been, why we had been there, and what we had to declare. At last, we were allowed through. To us, to me, it was an exhausting morning. But in the end, really, nothing out of the ordinary had happened for that place. But it did open up a window into another world for one set of Americans. Humans draw borders, and they are filled with drama and danger. 
We create them to define who is to define for ourselves who is in and who is out, who belongs and who must ask for permission to cross. Borders are an artifact of human fear and human need, of human longing for home and human selfishness. They are necessary and they have a penchant to become evil. When I reflect on my own brief and, in the end, inconsequential brush with insecurity at a border, it does open up a small window for me into what a border might mean for someone who is truly desperate to get across. Someone who is desperate to be reunited with their family. Desperate to find a job that will feed that family. Desperate to get away from violence or grinding poverty. And then, of course, there are other reasons to cross a border. Curiosity, joy, adventure, and love. I think we must ask ourselves, what will we become if we keep increasing the rigidity and violence of the borders in the world, including our own southern border? How will we be able to follow Jesus' teaching to welcome the stranger if no stranger is allowed in? In today's reading, Jesus is somewhere just as unsettling as a hard border. He is en route to Jerusalem, and he is in the in-between place, between his home turf of Galilee and Samaria. Now, a brief primer and reminder, Samaria is the region between Galilee in the north and Judea to the south, between Jesus' home region and the area where Jerusalem with its temple was. The people who lived in Samaria were related to the Jews. They were also Yahweh worshipers, but of a different kind. They were made up of the remnant of the ten tribes who'd been left behind when the others were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. They had intermarried with the Babylonians who colonized. Generations of this intermarrying and influence meant that when those who had been in exile returned, and began to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and its temple, the Samaritans said, what are you doing? That's not what God wants. We've been in the land all this time, and God has showed us that the true worship is on on Mount Gerizim. To which the Jews replied, you've got it all wrong. God promised us that we would return and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. How can we be obedient to God? Where else can we hear God so well? Why would we even be returned without a temple? You're wrong. You're wrong. You don't belong. Don't come near me. You are apostate. You are corrupting true religion. Back and forth, the animosity flew. This territory of the Samaritans lay between Galilee and Jerusalem, where faithful Galilean Jews went for the pilgrimage festivals. Sometimes they would go through Samaritan territory. It's probably not risking violence, but it was certainly risking want, because they would not be greeted with hospitality, and hospitality is required when you travel in the desert. Sometimes Galilean folks would cross over to the other side of the Jordan altogether, and travel through Gentile territory to get south to Jerusalem, 
rather than go through the hostile territory of the Samaritans. Jesus was there between Galilee and Samaria, in the undefined, in-between space that is neither one place or the other, a place as insecure and anxious as a hard border. And while he was there, 10 people with skin disease approached, the kind of disease that catches people's attention and fear of contagion, the kind of disease that had been addressed by the law in Leviticus, whereas prescribed that sufferers should go about in ragged clothes and call out unclean so that people would know not to draw near so that they wouldn't be infected. They were ritually unclean, that is, barred from going into the temple, but most people were periodically ritually unclean and in need of immersion in the sacred bath. This was that plus something more. There was societal pressure and fear of contagion. And so an invisible boundary of space was kept around the 10 men. No one had to enforce it with physical violence. The men knew to do it themselves. They kept themselves away. But when they saw Jesus, they cried out in a loud voice for mercy. And Jesus evidently honored that boundary and gave them that space and sent mercy across it. Unlike many of the other healing stories we have of Jesus, this one includes no physical contact. There's no touching as with the man born blind, no taking of the hand like with the little girl who Jesus raised, not even a touch of the hem of Jesus's garment like the woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years. Jesus spoke across the boundary and said, go and show yourselves to the priest. Though this is very normal, this is what a healed person would do in that day. They'd show themselves to the priest for verification that healing had indeed occurred, that they were both ritually clean and non-contagious, safe to move in and out of the community like everyone else, safe to live at home, to eat at the same table, to go to work, to pray at the synagogue, to travel to Jerusalem for the festivals. They were documented, given free passage to all the spaces and all the goods of that life. And so the 10 obediently went to show themselves. But one turned back, threw himself at Jesus' feet, and praised God and gave thanks. Just the one. 10 healed, one turned back. The Samaritan one the one whose people worshiped on the wrong mountain, the one who couldn't get documents for the inner court of the Jerusalem temple, no matter how healthy he became, the one whose religion marked him as a foreigner forever. Welcome to the court of the Gentiles, sure, but not the place where the faithful Jews worshiped. Just to accentuate the point, Jesus said, where are the other nine? Very well, your faith has made you whole. Go and live. As the Reverend Catherine Matthews points out in her commentary on this text, we should hear this story in the context of an early church that was wrestling with its identity. 
It was trying to figure out how to relate its Jewish roots, the Jewish roots of their faith, with all these Gentiles who were coming into the community. All these people with the wrong ancestors, the wrong traditions, the wrong ethnicity. It reminds me of the resistance some churches experiences when they experience when they try to change. Sometimes church people who may be unaware that they know gay people begin to become anxious and express fear when their church publicly and joyously embraces their gay and lesbian members, when they become open and affirming. Some people express anxiety and fear about this. What if we become a gay church? What if everyone who joins from now on is gay? Who will we be then? They're afraid of losing something they thought they knew about themselves, something that they thought was essential to their identity. Nadia Boltz Weber, the founder of the Lutheran congregation House for All Sinners and Saints, had another variant of this problem of fear of the outsider. The congregation she founded was a haven for people who felt unaccepted at more traditional churches. Bikers and drug addicts, recovering alcoholics, gay and straight and transgender, many rough around the edges. Soon enough, Nadia published her first book, Pastrix, about her journey from foul-mouthed, alcoholic, tatted-up, stand-up comedian to foul-mouthed, sober, joyful, tatted-up, orthodox Lutheran priest. It was quite a journey. And the book was a bestseller. People from all over the country, and especially from Denver, from the Denver metro area, started to visit her church. Suburban soccer moms in vans Volvo-driving lawyers and well-coiffed doctors. The regulars started looking around and saying, what if we become mainstream? What if everyone who joins from now on is from suburbia? Who will we be then? They were afraid of losing something they saw as essential to their identity. The way the different gospel authors gather the stories of Jesus' life and teaching, the order they put them in, which ones they emphasize, reflect the challenges of their own community. The community of Luke was working out the problem of who they were and why all of the Jewish people, why all of the Jewish people didn't follow Jesus as they had, and why all these Gentiles were coming, and how could the two be woven together into one church. What this story, like the parable of the Good Samaritan heard earlier in Luke, reminded them was that it was this outsider, this non-Jew, who showed them how to respond to the Jewish Jesus. That wisdom and insight come across boundaries. That all goodness is never held on one side or the other of a border. That allowing the Samaritan in wasn't a stooping down from those who had everything to the one who had nothing, but a welcoming in of one who brought the gift of right praise with him. In her sermon on this text, Barbara Brown Taylor agrees, she says, that the nine who went 
straight to the temple to show themselves to the priests. They were doing their duty. They were being obedient. There's nothing wrong with the way that they behaved. It was the law. They behaved in a good way, but only one, the double loser, the leper and Samaritan, behaved like someone who was in love. She thinks about how hard she tries to fulfill the expectations and obey the rules and be a good church-going person, like we all do. I know how to be obedient, she writes, but do I know how to be in love with God? This is the question that the Samaritan, who threw himself at Jesus' feet, raises for us. The good news of this story is that healing can come to us in the in-between spaces, that the foreign one, the one who worships at a different place, in a different way, may be the one to show us how to worship God with love and joy. Barbara Brown Taylor's question reminds me of the time that I went to visit a snake handling church. Boy, do I think they misunderstand the New Testament. And wow, do I plan never to go back. And yet, I learned something so deep and profound from them. When they get together for worship, they believe that God is going to be there with them every time. They enter that sanctuary lit up with the expectation that they will meet God there. It shook this member of God's frozen chosen right down to her toenails to be in the midst of such a deep and vibrant faith. Human diversity is a gift of God. A border that has become impermeable and rigid and violent is an affront to God and a wound to the humanity of people on both sides of the border. We have gifts and graces to receive from one another. I challenge us to listen for the ways the Spirit is calling us to work for a world where dialogue and diplomacy lead to peace, where integrity tears down walls, where everyone has enough and each one can sit in safety under their own vine and fig tree. Amen. Listen, listen, God is speaking to you.